Here's another listener. Essay. Essay. This is Infants on Thrones. Listener Essay. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is essay number two in our May 2018 Listener Essay Contest. Now, today's essay is by Tyler and is titled, A Newell Hope. Now, remember that you as the listener are able to vote for and provide private feedback to as many of these essays and authors as you'd like, but you can only vote one time for each essay. Now, voting will take place throughout the month of May and will end around midnight on May 31st. The top three winners will be announced in early June. First place wins $200, second place wins $100, and third place wins $50. And this is all determined by you, the listeners. So simply go to the website, infantsonthrones.com, find the essay or the essays that you want to vote for, click on the link, cast your vote, and provide some feedback to the author. And for those of you who still want to submit an essay for this May contest, there's still a bit of time. Now, if it comes in too late, it's not that big of a deal. It'll just roll over into the next contest that we do, probably in August, if there are enough submissions. Now, July will probably be a songwriting contest. I've received already some excellent submissions from listeners, like this song. And this one. And this one? Oh, brother Joe, you're forever the devil's scarecrow. Oh, do what you say, not what you do. So, yeah, it looks like a songwriting contest is going to happen. Email me at infantsonthrones at gmail.com to find out more about the songwriting competition. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves because that's then. And this is now, and now is all about today's essay from Tyler, titled A Newell Hope. So take it away, Tyler. Mormons place a great deal of significance on their ancestry. Long before the advent of DNA tracing, we were hard at work searching out our forefathers and drawing complex webs of family trees. But the connections we make with our families transcend mere shared genetic markers that offer clues into our physical makeup and vulnerabilities. They form literal ties to the people to whom we owe our existence, ties that, according to our belief system, will last through eternity. These people are more than just our physical forebears. Their spiritual DNA inhabits our souls and helps us understand who we are. My Mormon DNA runs deep. Many of my ancestors were among the first people from the heart of Europe to join this new American religion. They left the verdant foothills of the Alps and the shores of Lake Constance to settle the alien red rock country of present-day southern Utah. Others belonged to the Knight family, close friends of Joseph Smith Jr. even before the publication of the Book of Mormon and founding of the church. They were some of the first and most loyal members of the fledgling church, and one of them, Newell Knight, my great-grandfather four times over, was the subject of the first recorded miracle performed by Joseph Smith. When Mormons look for traces of their spiritual origins in their ancestry, 
They tend to seek out inspiring stories of bravery in the face of persecution, faith in a sea of doubt, or endurance under the pressure of temptation. Perhaps this makes me a bit of an outlier, but the story in which I have always located my own spiritual roots is that of Newell Knight's exorcism. In April 1830, just a few weeks after the founding of the church, a meeting was held at the Knight home in which Newell was asked to pray publicly, apparently for the first time in his life. He had promised Joseph beforehand that he would try to take up his cross and pray vocally, but when the time came, he backed out. Joseph chided him for his reticence and made the analogy that if Newell found himself stuck in a mud hole in the woods, wouldn't he want help getting out? Newell answered that if he'd gotten stuck in a mud hole through his own carelessness, he'd rather wait and get himself out than suffer the embarrassment of having others help him. So instead of praying publicly, Newell went into the woods the next day to pray on his own. Rather than receive an answer to his prayers, Newell was seized by an evil spirit, and a few hours later Joseph found him at his home, suffering a fit of contortions and being tossed about most fearfully. Joseph took his hand, cast out the spirit, and the visions of eternity were opened to Newell's view. Thus, the first miracle of Joseph Smith's career was performed, and my ancestor received a testimony of the restored gospel. As presented by Joseph Smith, this is a story of doubt, fear, and ultimate redemption through the grace of God and the power of the prophet. But I often wonder if Newell wasn't haunted all his life by the specter of that experience. Let me explain why. In the first part of the story, I see a strong correlation between Newell's situation and my own experience with the church. Newell obviously had a deep desire to be faithful and to obey the man he saw as a prophet, but the person he was didn't match with the person he thought he was expected to be. For him, the prospect of praying publicly, something that most Mormons do with little reserve, was a cross he felt terrified but obligated to bear. When the time came, however, he balked. His desire to fit in couldn't overcome his deep sense of self-consciousness, a character trait that is apparent in his response to Joseph's analogy of the mud hole. He would rather go through the effort and danger of getting himself out of trouble than suffer the shame of having others see the predicament he'd gotten himself into. This is my story, the story of a person with a deep desire to believe, to fit in, to participate in the body of faith. But like my forefather, I have again and again found my desire to believe and myself in conflict. Despite my wish to believe and to join the group, I've often felt out of place, like my own understanding and abilities were not quite compatible with the expectations of the church. It is the next part of the story that I find particularly interesting, and here my interpretation of the events will differ from an orthodox reading. Most members of the church would likely understand Newell's possession by an evil spirit as the consequence of his disobedience to the prophet and desire to do things his own way. Because he sought to act independent of God's will as revealed by his mouthpiece, Newell's defenses against the adversary were weakened, and he became vulnerable. Only the intercession of the prophet and God's mercy were sufficient to save him from physical and spiritual destruction. This reading is certainly borne out by the story as told, but if we put aside the supernatural aspects of the account and focus on the dynamic between Newell and Joseph, another explanation for Newell's affliction presents itself. 
It seems so strange and counterintuitive to me that he would be punished for his desiring to find out for himself before publicly expressing his belief. After all, Joseph found his calling by going out to the woods to pray in privacy. Rather than representing a punishment or the consequence of spiritual weakness, Newell's bout with madness, in my mind, can be seen as a result of the irreconcilable, con- irreconcilable conflict between who he was and the expectations that he was trying to fulfill. Without that pressure placed upon him by Joseph, he might have found his peace in the woods. But the expectation was there, and it haunted his self-conscious mind and drove him to the brink of despair. Minus the miraculous recovery, this is the story of a sensitive and idiosyncratic person who is tormented by his inability to live up to the expectations of the man he considers a prophet, despite the fact that his intentions and actions are good. The story ends with him becoming a new man, a classic redemption story, but I wonder if the man he was before required such a drastic ordeal and such a radical conversion to be saved, and whether he lost something good or essential about himself in the process. The man who had, in his own good, innocent way, resisted the pressure of the prophet and tried to follow his own path of good, became one of the prophet's most ardent and unquestioning followers. His son, Samuel Knight, followed in his father's unquestioningly obedient footsteps. He was one of the participants in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So what does all of this have to do with my spiritual journey and my loss of belief in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I feel very much that I am a product of Newell Knight's spiritual genetic code. My own journey has been one characterized by conflict between who I am and who I feel the Church expects me to be, and has been marked by attempts to overcome or circumvent this predicament, which have led to a great deal of inner turmoil and insecurity. I've made good faith efforts to take up my cross and toe the line, and I have seen positive results from them. My mission in Austria, and the many things I learned from that time being perhaps the best example of this. But it is an example that betrays a deeper truth. Yes, I adhered to the ultimate expectation of every Mormon boy by serving a mission, and I was blessed for it. And yet the blessings that I see in my mission came almost exclusively through me following my own path, rather than fulfilling the expectations put upon missionaries by the church. Looking back, the reasons that I do not regret spending two years of my life as a missionary have nothing to do with converting people to the church or strengthening my testimony. The former was an exceedingly rare occurrence in Austria, and the latter obviously didn't stick. The true blessings of my mission came in the form of meeting my future wife and having my eyes opened to an amazing world outside the Utah bubble, full of people who function without the church and ideas that challenged my perceptions in compelling and significant ways. These things didn't come to me because I followed the prescribed missionary line, but because I, in my own private way, deviated from it. I didn't lock my heart, as every missionary is told to do. I fell in love with my wife a fellow missionary, not long after meeting her. And while I didn't act on those feelings as a missionary, I've always felt a certain degree of shame talking about our story with fellow Mormons, because that is simply not supposed to happen on a mission. In addition to opening my heart to romantic love, I often let my fascination with Austria and my desire to find out more about the country, its culture, and its people overshadow the work I was supposed to be doing. 
I spoke with as many people as I could, not in order to teach them, but to listen and learn from them. Like Newell, I balked at the expectations of the group and tried to find my own way in the woods. I don't regret it, but I've never completely shaken the guilty feeling that I wasn't always following the guidelines I was given as a missionary. Two years ago, my wife and I came to the conclusion that we no longer believed in the church, and we stopped attending. In the time following that decision, I have tried to come to terms with how to articulate the belief, beliefs that will guide my life, now that the church is not a part of it. While I have yet to construct a cogent belief system, and I'm not sure I even want to do that, my current beliefs boil down to two general concepts. First, I believe that human beings deserve respect and the opportunity to fulfill their potential regardless of who they are, where they're from, or who they love. And second, I believe that an emphasis on obedience over conscientious action is, at a minimum, spiritually inhibiting and can have very dangerous implications. With regard to this second belief, I would make this appeal to Mormons. It is important to remember that the church was founded by a man who questioned the entire basis of the religious authority of his time. The Book of Mormon also teaches us to plant seeds of faith when we find ideas that have the potential to enrich our lives. If those things are good, we will recognize that goodness in the fruits they bring. This is how we ask people investigating the church to find a testimony. But once they accept the church is true, the follow the prophet and your local leaders without question and you will be blessed model of the gospel provides a very limited bag of seeds to work with and frowns upon experimentation with a variety of ideas and perspectives that could lead to a truly beautiful and diverse spiritual garden. And, to really stretch this analogy, what if the seeds you are given on occasion turn out to be noxious weeds? Do you recognize their bad fruits and immediately remove them so you don't do harm to the rest of your garden? Not if they were given to you by your leaders, according to the church. If you let them grow until told otherwise, you'll be blessed for it. Rather than perpetuate this destructive and stunting practice, why doesn't the church allow its members the freedom to cultivate their own gardens? There's a part of me that still loves the concept of eternal progression that Mormons proclaim, but I have to wonder what we are supposed to be progressing towards. Is it better individuals or more loyal yes-men? When I first started doubting my faith in the church, the two options I saw open to me were, in a way, the two that Newell Knight faced when he resisted the call to pray publicly. The first option was to do what the church requires, to abandon or at least continue to keep quiet about my personal beliefs that were at odds with church doctrine, to sweep the doubts I had about the founding of the church under the rug, and to move forward in faith, to reach out for Joseph's hand and trust in his power to deliver. To do this would have required that I rein in a part of myself, the curious, questioning, empathetic part that made me who I am right now. When I talked to my bishop about my loss of faith, he told me as much. He suggested that this faith crisis might be an opportunity for me to learn to apply eternal truths over the empathy that I felt for people marginalized by the church, to understand the limits of empathy, and to learn to control it. In saying this, he wasn't suggesting that I become a jerk, but he was expressing an important principle of the Mormon gospel. In order to grow, we need to give up things that are holding us back and move forward. I happen to agree with this. It's one of those many things that the church has taught me that I treasure. 
in his mind, by holding on to something that doesn't allow me to believe and follow the teachings of the church, I am stubbornly grasping at an anchor that is dragging me down and away from achieving my full spiritual potential. There is, however, another option. The option my ancestor didn't take. I think Newell was right to go out into the woods to pray that morning, morning to seek his truth. But he allowed self-doubt and self-conscious reflection on the perceptions of others to possess his mind and soul. Perhaps his prayer would have led him back to Joseph, but it would have been by means of his own action and conscience and on his own terms. In my case, I've decided to break out of the cycle of conformity and accept that my path lies in the woods. The faithful counter-argument to my choice would suggest that doing so is taking the easy way out, that I am not willing to give up a good part of myself in order to gain something better. My answer to that is, you are wrong. This path has required me to give up something as essential to my character as my sense of empathy. It demands that I set aside my strong sense of conformity and concession to authority. This is also rooted deep within my spiritual DNA. It's what made it possible for me to, to continue living what too often felt like a double life for years. The choice between empathy and conformity is, one could say, the choice between Christ and the church. The two need not be mutually exclusive, but it feels like they are. Conscious of that choice, I will err on the side of empathy. Perhaps this choice will get me lost in the woods. Perhaps, though highly unlikely, it will bring me back to Joseph and his church at some point. Even now, two years after I first put these reflections on paper, I don't know where it will lead me. But it's the only path I feel truly comfortable with. The only path that allows me to be most fully that which I aspire to be. And I have not regretted taking it. By all accounts, Newell Knight was a great person. I'm proud to be his descendant. But in the end, I am my own man and I have chosen a different path. Let's see where it takes me. So there you go. Thank you very much, Tyler, for your essay. Now, if you as our listener want to go and vote for this essay, go to our website, find this episode, click on the voting link, and leave your feedback. And if you haven't already joined us on Patreon, please consider signing up and supporting Infants on Thrones for as little as $1 per episode, capped at whatever budget you want to give yourself for the month. Your generosity helps keep this podcast alive and growing. So thank you and tune in tomorrow for another listener essay. Hi, my name is Bryce Jones. I'm from the armpit of America, Northeast Ohio, where you send your quarterbacks to die and we send our Kings to South beach and then bring them back. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.